Hello, ladies and lads, and welcome to the Hollow Leg Podcast. For this Monday episode, we're going to be talking about the Veterans Committee on the Baseball Hall of Fame ballot. Um, this is separate from the Baseball Writers Association ballot that I've already gone over a couple weeks ago. Uh, this ballot is much more small scale. I'll go over what the rules are for it and the players that were on it, as well as who was elected. I was originally going to save this for the baseball podcast on Wednesday, but there were some pretty big free agent moves over the weekend uh, that'll probably take up more time than usual. And I also just can't help myself. I've got to give my opinion on this. And you all know what people say about opinions. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the discussion. So, you might be asking, if you're unfamiliar with baseball, what is the Hall of Fame Veterans Committee? Well, it's actually now four committees that cover four eras of baseball. We have today's game, which it covers from 1988 to present day, the Modern Baseball Committee, which is up this year, uh, from 1970 to 1988, the Golden Days Committee from 1950 to 1969, and the Early Baseball Committee, which is anything before 1950. The Veterans Committee has been around since the start of the Hall of Fame, all the way back in 1939. Baseball Commissioner Keensaw Mountain Landis formed the Permanent Committee to serve as a Board of Trustees of the Hall and to put players from the 19th century into the Hall of Fame. In 1939, the committee selected five players. In 1944, after Landis's death, they put him in the hall. And then after Landis, they put 23 additional players into the hall as a reaction for the fact that the BBWAA was unable to elect anyone in those years. Now, the committee, the rules, and who is eligible, all of that has changed around quite a bit since then, so I'm only going to focus on the most recent changes to give you an idea of how it works. The format was last tweaked in July of 2016, as baseball's timeline was now divided into the four eras that I just went over. It would no longer be a strict rotation among eras, either. Early baseball candidates would come up for consideration only once every ten years, those from the golden days once every five years, and those from the two more recent eras twice every five years. This was done to focus more attention on the more recent periods, given that candidates from 1949 and before had already been combed over many times, while the accumulation of qualified candidates from the later periods meant that it was difficult for a single one to obtain the required supermajority. Candidates become el eligible for consideration by the Veteran Committee as soon as they fall off the BBWAA ballot with no waiting period, while executives, if still active, were eligible once they reached the age of 70. A quick edit here, I forgot to mention that the Veterans Committee is the only way for non-players to get elected into the Hall of Fame. That's where you see the um, managers, umpires, baseball executives, things like that, uh, those guys get in. And there is actually one elected this year that I'll talk about in a moment. Now, I was unable to learn how the committee members get selected, just that the committee, quote, shall consist of 16 members comprised of members of the National Baseball Hall of Fame, executives, and veteran media members. The chairman of the board of directors of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, 
shall act as the non-voting chairman of the committee and shall act as the non-voting secretary of the committee, end quote. And I took that directly from the Baseball Hall of Fame website. I also couldn't find out any information on how they select the ballot members other than if they fell off the Baseball Writers Association ballot. This year, the Modern Era Committee was up covering the years from 1970 to 1988. Keep in mind that the player or person needed to be active during this time. There were nine players and one executive. Catcher Ted Simmons, catcher Thurman Munson, right fielder Dwight Evans, first baseman Steve Garvey, first baseman Don Mattingly, right fielder Dale Murphy, designated hitter Dave Parker, second baseman Lou Whitaker, starting pitcher Tommy John, and former Players Union head Marvin Miller, who shaped the free agency system we have today, and probably should have been elected into Cooperstown already, if I'm honest. Now, everybody on this list had great careers, and they would not be on the list if there wasn't at least an argument for them. That being said, Ted Simmons was the only player elected, with Marvin Miller being the other new member to Cooperstown. Ted Simmons had a great career, being the 10th best catcher according to the Jaws metric, which is their career war averaged with their 7-year peak war. For example, Ted Simmons here had a 50.3 career war with a 34.8 7-year peak war, which averages to a 42.6 Jaws. It's a pretty good measuring of a player, though not perfect. He managed 2,472 hits with 248 home runs, a career 285 batting average with a career 118 OPS+. He had eight all-star games across his 21-year career. Certainly nothing to shake your stick at. However, there are three players in particular that I want to discuss um, that I believe are probably just as deserving as he was, if not more so. We're going to start off with Lou Whitaker, who was the star second baseman for the Detroit Tigers his entire career, spanning from 1977 to 1995. His 276 career batting average, 2,369 hits, and 244 home runs don't look impressive on their own, but they're only part of a larger skill set. Whitaker had a great batting eye, taking 1,197 walks and bumping his on-base percentage up to a very respectable 363. While he wasn't a slugger, he had solid doubles power, adding 420 of them to his totals and bumping his slugging percentage up to 426. All in all, that makes for a 789 OPS and a 117 OPS+. And when he retired, he was number four on home run leaders at second base, only surpassed by Joe Gordon, Joe Morgan, and Rogers Hornsby, all of them already Hall of Famers at that point. And although his OPS plus of 117 isn't anything too great, it never went below the league average of 100 after 1980, which shows remarkable consistency with the bat, especially given that at the time second base was not considered a very offensive position. Now on top of providing a lot of offense at a tough position, he was also a really good fielder. War has him in the top 25 all-time defensively at second. Fangraphs 
uh, system of measuring war has them at 16th, while baseball reference, which I prefer, has them at 24th. He even managed three gold gloves, despite playing at the same time as Frank White, who was a perennial gold glover and one of the ten best fielding second basemen of all time. Whitaker is very likely one of the 20 best hitters and fielders all time at his position, and that should be enough for Cooperstown. Whitaker sits at number 13 on all-time Jaws second baseman list, and considering that the list from number 1 to number 30 has a vast majority of Hall of Famers or players still playing or recently retired, that just shows how underrated Lou Whitaker really is. Next up, we have the case for starting pitcher Tommy John, which is slightly less clear-cut. If you recognize the name, that's because he was the first pitcher to get the ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction surgery that now bears his name. Now his career numbers are respectable with a couple of standouts, but also with the caveat that he was more of a compiler than an overwhelming pitcher. His 61.5 war is good, but not what you would expect from the lofty Hall of Fame standards for starting pitchers. He didn't get that sacred 300 win total. Ironically, he probably would have had he not missed that 1975 season from his surgery that saved his career. He only won 20 plus games three seasons out of 26. Oh, did I not mention this guy pitched for 26 seasons? That's right, he had surprisingly longevity, compiling 4,010.1 innings, which is good for 11th in the live ball era from 1920 onwards for innings pitched. The only other players with 4,500 innings not in Cooperstown right now are Roger Clemens, who I've discussed in the BBWA8 ballot podcast a couple weeks ago, and Jim Cat, who I probably will talk on someday. Now back in the day, that was probably written off as part of his surgery, but given that so few people since have matched him, it's probably just as much that he was extremely durable, especially given how he pitched to tell 46 on a rebuilt ligament. Now he wasn't an overpowering pitcher, but he did compile 2,245 strikeouts, limited home runs with only a .6 home run per nine innings, which is pretty good, and an above average ERA plus of 111. He also had an extremely long, though not very steep, peak, posting solid season numbers from 1965 all the way until 1984, when his numbers and analytics start to fall off. Now I normally prefer players who do have better peaks to players who compiled, as it were, but I think that Tommy did enough to join the hall. And finally, saving the best for last, we come to Thurman Munson. Thurman Munson was the catcher for the New York Yankees from 1969 to 1979. His is a tragic case as he passed away in the middle of the 1979 season due to a plane accident, and he was only 32 years old. Even with his career cut short, he is 12th all-time on the Jaws ranking for catchers, with every catcher above him already in the hall, save for Joe Maurer, who only retired last season. In his 11 seasons, he managed 1,558 hits, 113 home runs, 
a 292 batting average, and a 116 OPS+. He was also great on defense, saving 32 runs defensively over his career. He made the All-Star squad seven times and took home the 1976 AL MVP and was the 1970 Rookie of the Year. So why isn't he in the Hall already? The main reason is that he played at a very unfortunate time. Not only was he not the best catcher in baseball, but he wasn't even the best catcher in his own league. He started at the same time as Johnny Bench and Carlton Fisk, while in the mid-70s, during the middle of his career, saw the emergence of Gary Carter. Remember how I said that he was 12th all-time in Jaws? Well, those three guys that I just mentioned took up the spots one through three until Yvonne Rodriguez retired in 2011. It's probably hard to get traction for Hall of Fame voting when you're going up against competition that good. Now, there are two arguments I commonly see going against Munson that I'm going to go ahead and dispel. The first being that you can't hypothesize what the rest of his career might have been, and the second would be that because his election would be posthumously, you should prioritize living players over him. Now, the posthumous argument I'm going to dispel right away because it's easy. All you have to do is go to the baseballhall.org, and you can find the page where they list all 110 Hall of Famers who were elected after they died. They don't seem to have very many qualms against this, so that's a pretty easy argument to dismiss. And the second case is that the Hall has already elected someone, even though they kind of hypothesized what his career would be like, and conveniently, it was also a catcher. In 1969, the BBWAA elected Roy Campanella to the Hall of Fame. Campanella was the star catcher of the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1948 to 1957, and in January of 1958, Campanella became paralyzed from the chest down after breaking his neck in an automobile accident. Campanella made eight all-star teams, earned three MVP awards, compiled 1,161 hits, 242 home runs, and a 276 batting average with an OPS plus of 123. Campanella is number 23 on the Jaws ranking for catchers. But he was elected because he had three MVPs and was the undisputed best catcher in the NL for his time. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and lay my Veterans Committee arguments to rest. Unfortunately, while the Baseball Writers Association voting seems to be a popularity contest, the Veterans Committee seems to be much more of a who-you-know gets you elected. Um, I know that there's been quite a few people elected that have had a lot of controversy around it because they certainly don't seem to meet the Hall of Fame standards. Um, case in point, last year Harold Baines was elected, as well as a slew of mediocre candidates back during the 70s and 80s. With all that out of the way, I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Like I said, this is something that I'm pretty passionate about, and I really wanted to get this out here. I hope you all enjoyed listening. I'd like to encourage you to give us a follow and share us with your friends to help the podcast grow. This is The Hollow Leg, signing off.